Has there ever been a time when you felt like you were all on your own? Somehow, something happened and you got left holding the bag. And then you start kicking yourself. Why did I ever trust that person? Or why did I ever agree to this project or this situation or whatever it was? And I think that's what the Israelites were feeling about day 38, seeing that the mountain was still covered with God's glory and the cloud of his presence, and there was no Moses. And Aaron and, and the elders and all of those people had come back. They'd been there already 30, however many days. And I think they were starting to feel like, how did we get into this situation? We just need to move on. See, remember where they had come from? They'd been an enslaved people group for hundreds of years. There were only months between when they had escaped Egypt and arrived here at the base of Mount Horeb. And even though God had been revealed as far more powerful than all the other gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, though God had provided sweet water and manna, though God had safely brought the people out of Egypt and provided them with great treasure, they were still a badly battered people used to abuse, used to being used. And trust was not going to be something that would easily come for them. So while God was giving Moses all the law and the instructions for the tabernacle and a beautiful meeting place between heaven and earth, the people were losing hope and losing trust. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, this is such an important story for us, and we don't want to miss any part of it. We're so thankful to you for making sure that this really sad part of Israel's history was preserved for us to learn from. And so we ask that you help us to see what we need to see this morning. We pray it to the praise of your grace. Amen. So in our first division, this is the golden calf, the first six verses, and in it we see the people getting restless. As one translation puts it, when the people realized that Moses was taking forever and coming down off the mountain, they rallied around Aaron and said, do something, make gods for us who will lead us. That Moses, the man who got us out of Egypt, who knows what's happened to him. Aaron was in a difficult position. You know how hard it is to stand up for something when nobody else is on your side. So think of all these people crowding in on Aaron making even maybe some elders and judges among them. And they were not asking for a decision. They were way past that. They were demanding action. So, you know, maybe Aaron was stalling when he said, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Maybe he was stalling for time. Maybe he thought that they would not part with their newfound wealth. I mean, this was the plunder of Egypt. They were an enslaved people. They'd never had such nice things. But not only were they willing, they were eager. So they could have what they were longing for, a concrete God who was predictable and familiar, who, could, who, who wasn't going to disappear on them and leave them feeling abandoned. So what happened next may have caught them off guard. So right then and there, all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and they brought them to Aaron. Now he was in a worse fix. As God was chiseling in stone the phrase, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image on the summit of Mount Horeb, 
the people with Aaron in the valley below, took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. Now the idol represented a young bull in its first strength, so maybe Aaron told himself it could represent the power of God, that it was not really an idol, but simply an image that could help the people focus their trust in the true God. And as God chiseled the next commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, Aaron spoke words to the people that did just that. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the people were pleased with their idol. They agreed that it was this golden bull which had taken them out of Egypt, using the very phrase that God had reserved for God alone. All the earth-rocking signs of judgment, all the heart-stopping miracles, the Passover, the Red Sea, the water, the manna, all attributed to this bull that they had made. Later, Aaron would claim the bull was a miracle, leaping out of the fire fully formed. Now, you and I may not connect with worshiping a golden bull made out of our earrings, but an idol is not just a statue. An idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. The point about an idol is that it feels safe. It feels like something that can be controlled, that has parameters, that follows a formula. If I do this, the idol will produce what I want, what I need, what I long for. If it does not, well, I'll just find a new one. So maybe Aaron was trying to make the best of a bad situation with what he did next. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to who? To the Lord. Now, if Aaron was trying to redeem a situation, it spiraled out of control. It was doomed. It reminds me of something Jesus would say almost 2,000 years later. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Because the next day, the people were still in a mood to worship this, this object, and the festivities degraded pretty quickly into drunkenness and the kind of sexual worship practices that went along with bull festivals. And what I get from this is that living by faith requires patient obedience, especially when you and I don't fully understand what God is doing. I'm reminded of something James wrote to the first century church. He said, Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. You see, when God seems absent, God is not actually absent. God is continuing to prepare whatever it is we're waiting for. And sometimes what God is preparing is you and me, the fiber of our character, training us in trusting patience. So where might God be training you in patience right now? You can feel the pull of something else that promises to get the job done right now. What would happen if you resisted that pull and waited for God instead? Well, that brings us into our next division, it's about crime and punishment. Now, Moses was delighting in God in a mountaintop experience while the people down below were indulging in forbidden delights. Above was order, below was chaos. Above was God inscribing the law, 
below was utter lawlessness. Just as God finished the tablets, the Lord's conversation with Moses took an unexpected turn. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now that word perverse is the same word God used to describe the people of Noah's day going to ruin and destruction. And then in verse 8, God was especially wounded by the name the people had given their bull, God's own name, the one who had brought them up out of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now stiff-necked was a term used for an ox that refused to take on its yoke. God exposed the people's rebellion, paying lip service to obedience, but in actuality, so stiff-necked, they refused the authority of God's word. They were ready to bow down to an idol, to sacrifice to it and to worship it, but they refused to bow down to God. But what God said next had to have stunned Moses, after all they had gone through together. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. You know, sometimes God's judgment comes and there's no turning back, because as the Bible puts it, sin has reached its fullness. But more often, God would state what was going to come if the people did not do something. Dozens of times in the Old Testament, God would speak in this way to a prophet or a leader, and then that person would pray. So Moses prayed out of his love for the people. In verse 11, Moses reminded the Lord of God's special covenant relationship with the people. In verse 12, Moses appealed to the holiness and trustworthiness of God's name, the expression of God's character. Finally, in verse 13, Moses referred to the promise God had given to the patriarchs. And in response to Moses' fervent intercession, the Lord turned aside judgment. Again, I'm reminded of something James wrote to the first century church. He said, The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. You and I only need to read the headlines to know what we need to be praying for. What might God be calling you to pray about for our leaders, for our country, for the world? So Moses went down the mountain with the stone tablets. They were probably not that large since they were written on both sides, and Moses was able to carry them himself. And these tablets were a rare treasure, because the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, engraved upon the tablets. Now, part of the way down, Moses met up with Joshua, who had been waiting for him, and Joshua thought all that raucous mayhem he was hearing had to be war. No, Moses said, it is not. It is revelry. At the bottom of the mountain, Moses saw with his own eyes how depraved the situation had gotten. Think of the shock for Moses going from the summit of communion with God to the depths of depravity in the camp. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets with his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, this may have been an impulsive action, but it came straight from his heart, and it dramatically illustrated the awful truth of broken fellowship with God. The Lord never rebuked Moses for this. Before he dealt with the people, Moses confronted Aaron, and Aaron tried to defend himself with four pretty familiar-sounding defenses. Here's the first one. First he told Moses, Relax! Do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. This is not as big a deal as you're making it out to be, Moses. Evidently, that did not work. So, next, Aaron blamed the people. You know the people, that they are bent on evil. They said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. Look, it's not my fault. You know how they are. It was a whole nation of people pressuring me. Moses was still glaring. So Aaron tried excuse number three. They said to me, As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. You see, Moses, it really is your fault. This whole thing is on you. Moses still did not relent. So Aaron gave it one last try. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. One thing just led to another. Before I knew what was happening, out came this calf. It's like a miracle. It must be God, right? Wrong. Aaron had given in to the pressure. He had allowed something that went completely against what God had instructed in order to accommodate what the people wanted. By God's grace, our wrongs are forgiven, but that does not prevent the consequences of wrongs. Moses did not accept Aaron's explanations. He saw that the people were running wild, out of control. So he called them to repentance, to reaffirm the commitment to the Lord. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. It was an open invitation to everyone. But only the Levites responded. Now to see how significant this is, we have to go way, way back in Genesis. 400 years before. When two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, took their swords and killed every male in the city of Shechem because the prince of Shechem had had sex with their sister Dinah before they were married. Then they plundered the city. They took all the flocks and herds, all Shechem's children and women, all their wealth, and they kept it for themselves. When confronted, both of them told the same story. They had done it to defend their sister's honor. But were they telling the truth? You see, Jacob was nervous about them, ever since. So whenever they got near Shechem, he got nervous. In fact, that's why he had sent Joseph to go check up on his brothers, because they were near Shechem. Finally, at the end of his life, Jacob prophesied over his sons, and God's word to both Simeon and Levi was that their descendants would never have an inheritance in the promised land because of the horrifying thing that they had done. Now, centuries later, the true nature of the Levites' fierceness 
to defend the honor of the one they loved would be used for the Lord. And it is that same fierceness and ability to deal with slaughter and blood that positioned them to receive God's calling to be priests, to offer up all those sacrifices daily to God. The Levites were also given their inheritance in God, a gift they gladly received because of who they truly were. Now the Simeonites, on the other hand, they eventually were absorbed into Judah's inheritance. And so the truth of what Simeon and Levi had said centuries before was now revealed. The worst offenders were gathered and put to the sword by the Levites, even if they were part of the Levites' own family. Sin is a sickening business. The Bible says sin always leads to corruption and death. In a body infected with gangrene, you have to cut off that part, otherwise the whole body dies. And it's probably at this point, when the people were subdued and horrified, traumatized, that Moses burnt the calf, ground it into dust, threw it in the water, and made the survivors drink it. This was a graphic illustration of the terrible, terrible thing they had done, exchanging the bread of heaven for an idol. After this grim and awful trial, Moses encouraged the Levites, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. And what I learned from Moses is that those who suffer for doing what is right are blessed. It reminds me of something the Apostle Peter would write centuries later. He said, Even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. God both vindicated Levi and redeemed the fierceness of Levi's legacy. For you and me today, we can be confident God knows our stories and our hearts. When we have been humbled and live out our faith in patient obedience, we can be confident God's blessing is there and God will lift us up in due time. Well, the last division is about continuing consequences. The next morning, Moses called the people together. You have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Deuteronomy 9 offers some more details about what happened. When Moses went back up the mountain, he stayed with the Lord for another 40 days and nights, fasting and praying and pleading for the people. He was afraid that God's wrath would not be turned away without atonement. In verse 20, it says that the Lord was so angry with Aaron that God was ready to destroy him too. So Moses prayed specifically for his brother. Moses begged for God's forgiveness, for mercy. But if mercy would not come without the Lamb's blood on the atoning covering, then Moses prayed, please blot me out of the book of life for the sake of the people. But God would not accept Moses' offer. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. 
The Apostle Paul spoke of this same book, as did the Apostle John in his revelation. Only one person has the power to preserve the names written there. Only one person would be able to atone for the sins of the world. And it was our Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. Until then, God would visit judgment on the people for their sin. And a plague was sent, and another 3,000 people died. Jesus' atoning sacrifice writes every believer's name in the Book of Life. Just as God redeemed a centuries-old wound in the tribe of Levi and vindicated their fierceness, so also God will redeem our deep wounds and vindicate those who are for God. But that work begins with Jesus' invitation to put our faith in Him, to trust Him, and to be patient as He prepares us for what lies ahead. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, it is so hard to be patient, especially when we don't know what's going on, especially when we feel all alone and left holding the bag, especially when we're used to thinking we're the only ones who are going to get the job done. And so we pray, help us to sense your presence. Would you strengthen our trust in you? Would you remind us often that you are for us. We pray this to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.